Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. Today, we're talking about indications for a cesarean section during labor. So there's a lot of reasons that during labor, we're going to call a C-section, as we say it, meaning we are going to recommend or strongly recommend a C-section delivery rather than a continued attempt at a vaginal delivery. One of the most common reasons you might see it, and one of the ones that's a little bit more urgent, is what's called non-reassuring fetal heart tracing. Used to be called fetal intolerance to labor, so you might still hear those words around, but typically people are going to say it's for non-reassuring or non-reassuring fetal heart tracing, meaning a category two or category three uh, tracing. So again, I'm not really going to go into the different types of categories here because it's really hard to describe verbally only. Review the practice bulletin. There's a very thorough practice bulletin on the different categories of fetal heart tracings. But if you have a category two tracing, we talk about category two as a really broad category. So this is everything from occasional variables, occasional lates that look great in between to recurrent late decelerations, but you still have some variability, so you can't quite call it anything terrible yet. So you'll hear people be like, oh, that's a 2C, meaning it's a 2, but it's not a good one. Um, although those minimal, the A, B, and C aren't actual categories that exist. It might just be slang or jargon you hear around. But anyway, fetal, category 2, remote from delivery, um, is a reason that people will use for non-reassuring fetal heart tracings for a C-section. Um And you might get asked while you're on the wards, what is the most uh, accurate predictor of the four things that we use to describe a tracing, meaning the baseline, the variability, the X cells, and the D cells? So which one of those four things is the most significant predictor of fetal acidemia or really how the baby is doing? And the answer is actually variability. Most people either say X cells or D cells, but the variability is what is most predictive of fetal acidemia. So I worry more uh, when somebody loses their variability and they have minimal or absent variability than if they just have occasional D cells with good variability in between. The worst type of tracing is called a category three tracing, and that is an indication for a stat or emergent C-section delivery. Um, Category three includes a sinusoidal uh, pattern, which is is an indicator for severe fetal anemia. So something that you'll see in all immunization and anemia, uh, and then like really bad abruptions when both baby and mom are bleeding, or a vasoprevia that's bleeding. Um, Category three, so sinusoidal. You can also have absent variability with recurrent late or variable D cells. Um, or absent variability with bradycardia. Those are your category three tracings, and that means emergent delivery. Um, So those are the different types of non-reassuring. Essentially, the tracing's not looking good. So that's a reason that we call it even if somebody is progressing or is making change. Another common reason, you'll see more and more women are getting induced. So they're undergoing an induction of labor. So if we are attempting to induce somebody, we're trying to convince their body to be in labor. Sometimes we don't win. Sometimes we're fighting against ourselves, meaning we're using things that relax the uterus at the same time. We're trying to counteract them with things that um, excite or um, contract the uterus. So sometimes we just can't ever get somebody into labor. 
and you can't try indefinitely. So there's a lot of different definitions out there for how to define a failed induction of labor. So most inductions are going to start, you're going to be in early labor. Very rarely are you going to start an induction once somebody's already in what we call active labor or six centimeters or more. So a failed induction is somebody, we need them to be on pitocin and they need to be ruptured. So you need to have both of those things for at least 12 hours. 12 hours is the minimum. So 12 hours ruptured on pit is the minimum. And then other definitions include 18 or 24 hours ruptured on pit. And people will use these different definitions depending on sort of how good a candidate this person really is for a vaginal delivery, how how much you really think they have a, a baseline chance. Um, Different institutions will have different protocols, but all of them are legitimate. They're all verified in the literature, and it just kind of depends which source you do, you side with in terms of if it's 12 or 24 hours ruptured on pit. But they have to be both ruptured and on pitocin for to call it a failed induction of labor. So if you do begin an induction and people start making change, say they get up to 6 centimeters, 7 centimeters, they're now in active labor. Once you are in active labor, you can have something called an arrest of dilation. You, arrest of dilation is not something that exists below six centimeters. So you have to be active labor, and then you can have an arrest. Because in early latent labor, oh my gosh, it can take hours and hours and hours to make slow change, even days. Sometimes we send women home from triage you know, to sleep overnight because we're like, you're just not making change fast enough, and you shouldn't be admitted during this very early latent period. So once you're in active labor, we expect for you to make consistent and regular change in the cervix. And by that, we primarily are talking about the dilation. Excuse me. (coughs) It's the winter. So um, what do I mean by change? So once you're six centimeters or greater, I want you to make a centimeter of change. And really what you should be doing is every hour or so. But what is the upper limit of normal? What is the upper limit of what is acceptable? This was defined by a sentinel paper called uh, the Zhang paper, which is defined what was called the Zhang curve. Now, the Zhang curve told us that you should make at least one centimeter of change every four to six hours, depending on how good your contractions were. So do we know if this woman's contractions are adequate? And to be start with, What's adequate? So adequate contractions we need an IUPC or an intrauterine pressure catheter. This catheter is going to tell us the true pressure that these contractions create, the amount of power behind this woman's contractions. The tocometer, the external monitor, only tells me the frequency. Even though you'll look at different strips and you'll see some people's contractions look beautiful and big and strong and other people's look tiny and wimpy, unless they're internal monitors, it tells you nothing about the strength. It only tells you the frequency if you have an external monitor. So in order to know anything about the strength, we need an IUPC, an intrauterine pressure catheter, and this tells us how strong they really are. The strength is measured in this made-up unit that you will never see anywhere else. It's called a Montevideo unit, of course, named for the person who defined it. Um, And you need at least 200 to 250 Montevideo units in order to be adequate contractions. You calculate these units by looking at the change in the contraction, so the peak of the contraction minus the baseline, and multiply it by the number of contractions in a 10-minute period. So... If they have adequate contractions, they should be making one centimeter of change at least every four hours. If their contractions are inadequate or we don't have an IUPC, so I can't prove that they're adequate, they get six hours for every single centimeter in active labor. Um, So 
if they don't make that, if they if I don't have an IUPC and they are still unchanged over six hours, that's called an arrest of dilation. Um, and the number of women who can meet that definition and would go on to have a successful vaginal delivery is very, very few. And the risk of continuing with those few is outweighed by the number of women who would then end up with infections and bad sections and additional bleeding from their C-section. So the decision was made to go with that uh, four hours adequate or six hours of inadequate contractions um, for an arrest of dilation C-section. What if you get to complete? Do you ever C-section somebody who's completely dilated? You can. You can arrest. You can C-section somebody for what's called an arrest of descent. So if you get to completely dilated and you're pushing, there is a point at which we say you're pushing, but baby's not coming down. You're not making progress in terms of that station. You're not increasing your station. So how long do you get? In my head, I always start with the longest time possible. The longest time somebody gets is a prime or somebody who has never had a vaginal delivery before with an epidural. So a prime with an epidural gets three hours and three hours with no change. So if you're pushing three hours, but you're making change, you're making, you're increasing that station. Baby went from plus two to plus three to plus four. It doesn't, it's not a hard and fast rule. It's three hours without change. So if they have pushing three hours and they're making change, we can let them keep pushing or we can offer an operative vaginal delivery, which we'll talk about later. Um, but they get three hours at a minimum. Now, a a prime or somebody who has not had a vaginal delivery before without an epidural gets two hours. So I always think of it prime with an epidural, three hours, and you subtract an hour if they don't have an epidural, and you subtract an hour if they're a multip. So then a multip with an epidural gets only two hours, and a multip without an epidural only gets one hour. After that, that's when you should be discussing a C section. And again, <coughs> sorry, that's if they're not making progress. All right, what about um, slightly more rare things? So if you are in labor and we either offer to break your water, what's called an artificial rupture of membranes, or you spontaneously rupture on your own when baby is in a high station, it's, it's high up in the pelvis, it's not well engaged, you can get what's called a cord prolapse or that umbilical cord can slip down underneath the baby's head in between the baby's head and the bony maternal pelvis. The problem with this is that between the, the fetal head and the maternal pelvis, this cord can get squeezed and it can, you know, the pressure of the baby's head on the maternal pelvis can be greater than the pressure of the blood flow, essentially cutting off the blood flow to the baby. Um, and this can obviously lead to hypoxia for the baby and eventually death. So a cord prolapse is an emergency. We often will, somebody will keep their hand within the maternal vagina and try to reduce the baby's head, reduce that station and make more room to make sure that the cord receives adequate blood flow. Um, and literally it's, it's called riding the bed. If your hand is in that vagina, you are riding all the way back to the OR and your hand is remaining there until the baby is removed via C-section. So, um, you get draped under there and everything. Um, it's not a good thing. You don't want to see it happen, but if you do, it is a true emergency. Another reason that we um, call sections really without before people get a whole lot of chance to start their labor is if they're in a not a good presentation, a not vertex presentation. So if their head is not straight down. So if they're breached, their butt is down. They're transverse, meaning they're laying sideways. Or they have a compound presentation where, say, the elbow is presenting first because the baby's got their head or their arm um, crooked over their head and it's the elbow first. Um, those are reasons, again, that we would do a C-section. 
back in the day, breech uh, extractions, as they were called, or breech vaginal deliveries were more common. Um, the risk of a breech delivery is that the baby's head is the biggest part of the baby, and that head can get entrapped within the maternal pelvis. Um, think about how long it takes for that maternal to, for the mom to push the baby's head out um, in you're going reverse. So the head can get stuck within the pelvis while the body and the umbilical cord, more importantly, are outside of the pelvis. And so the baby will strangulate. It can have hypoxia and brain damage. So we try our best not to do any breech vaginal deliveries anymore. There are certain rare cases in which moms might be a good candidate for one if they come in actively laboring. Um, But generally speaking, a C-section is just so much safer for a baby that we tend to prefer that over a breech vaginal delivery, but there are some people in some places that can do safe and effective um, breech vaginals, which is a really rare thing. So if you have a chance to see it, it's phenomenal. Um, Consider yourself lucky. Um, A few other things I'll comment on, other reasons we do C-sections, they tend to fall into some of these bigger categories. So things like an abruption, people ask about an abruption, um, meaning the placenta separating from the uterine wall. It really depends how big it is. If it's big enough to cause a problem for baby, you're going to see it and it's going to translate into non-reassuring fetal heart tones. Um, So baby's going to stop getting enough oxygen and they're going to show that in their heart rate. Um, Other than that, if an abruption is small, the blood actually works um, to help the uterus contract more frequently and You'll hear people potentially say she just abrupted the baby out, meaning she started abrupting and her body, in order to save the baby and in a reaction to the blood, contracted so hard and so fast that she delivered that baby so fast to protect it um, when the body's reaction realized it was not actually um, in a safe place. Um, Those are most of it. The other thing would be a vasa previa, meaning... But that would be something we wouldn't even let labor, that she would be in the hospital usually and be delivered early at 34, 35 weeks. But the Avesa Previa is um, the transition from the placenta to the umbilical cord, those large vessels overlying the cervical os, um, usually from a marginal cord insertion, uh, more common with twins or multiple gestation, um, and often picked up on early ultrasound. Placenta previa is in that same general category in that any type of placenta or cord overlying the cervical os, we're not going to let you labor. So hopefully you don't come in laboring. Hopefully that's not a reason we call a section during labor um, because hopefully we have identified it early and identified you as somebody who is not going to be allowed to labor at all. Um, All right. So those are the main six reasons for C-sections being called during labor. Just to review, non-reassuring fetal heart tracing. Failed induction of labor, meaning 24 to, or 12 to 24 hours ruptured on pit. Arrest of dilation, so not making any change over four hours of adequate contractions or six hours of inadequate contractions. Arrest of descent, so prime with an epidural, three hours. Prime without an epidural, two hours. Multip with an epidural, two hours. Multip without an epidural, one hour. A cord prolapse and malpresentation. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day, every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new Clerkship Ready pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a Procedure Ready or Clerkship Ready podcast for their specialty, pass along their information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at ProcedureReady.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.